God, you're still present. God, just help us feel that presence. God, this is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see all of you guys. Um, this happens to be your first time here at Hill City. My name is John Wagler. I'm part of this team. And uh, grateful that you are here with us and spending a portion of your Sunday here and hope this is a place that you can uh, call home. Uh, we're in this series called Something is Happening, which we're looking at all of these different through lines to uh, how, what happens when God is doing this big movement or an awakening or this renewal. And uh, what are the common threads that end up happening? And so we're kind of hovering in the book of Acts for the next several weeks together to take a look at some of the things that we see like when the church actually started, like what were the things that like spurred on the church and, and then how do those things play out throughout history because we see that there, all of these common things are kind of associated with it and so um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible is broken up into an Old and New Testament and the first, in, the, in Jesus' life, death and resurrection is the hinge point in between those things and then what ends up happening is Matthew, Mark, Luke and John write about the life and teachings of Jesus. Those are the first four books in the New Testament. And then this book of Acts talks about this powerful moment where the Spirit of God begins to move in men and women and the church is started. Like we are a product of what happened in that moment. And so what you're doing here today um, is, is a product of that and how we live this out. And there's some things that, that were going on during that time that uh, are, are, are common. They're common threads in, that are woven in. And so uh, throughout history, there's been all of these big, uh, big moments, these great awakenings, these big revivals, and, and they happen every so often. It's not all the time. God's moving all the time, but these big moments happening. And, and we're actually in one right now. I don't know if you, you realize that or know to the extent of it, but, but it is what's happening uh, throughout the world. And, and there's some things that are, are simmering in our own country. We're not there yet. We're not there yet, but there are, th there are some things that are simmering right now that are revealing the fact that there is something about to happen. Uh, there, there's something that's about to happen and there's something that's happening and we got to pay attention to some of the indicators that are there. Nicole did a wonderful job last week if you were here uh, talking about confession and repentance and uh, helping us kind of center that like when, when, when we're people who confess and repent and uh, we become high commitment, high curiosity kind of believers, right? And that changes how we interact as the Spirit of God begins to move. But this idea of repenting is, is interesting because it's the, the idea of we're turning away from the way of the world. We're turning away from uh, what's going on around us and we're turning towards something else, right? And what's interesting, when I was growing up there, when we talk about the turning away, there was this phrase, and some of you guys might remember this, turn or burn. Does anyone remember that? Like growing up, like this is not a good one uh, at all. And uh, it was this idea like, you turn away from the ways of the world, you're gonna burn in hell, right? And like, which I don't, I don't know who first thought of that um, and thought, like, you know, it'd be great. Let's try and scare the hell out of people, right? Like, it's like, it's like a good tactic to see how to get them to believe in Jesus. Um, what's fascinating is there was a, a, a large level of Christianity that kind of bought into that model um, to try and make people scared of hell um, as if that was, like, enough to make them believe in Jesus. And what's funny is you don't see that anywhere in the Bible, like when Jesus taught, he wasn't saying to them, you're going to burn in hell. That's, he didn't say things like that. What he said was, let me lead you into 
like to believe in me, let me lead you into a fullness of life, into freedom, to understand what it means to truly be human, to experience life how you're supposed to experience it, and to see this life in this world how you're supposed to see it through my eyes. Like he, that's what he would, and he would give them like ways to go and do that. Like that, that's what his process was. When Peter, uh, in Acts chapter two, uh, um, when Peter is preaching, he's not trying to scare anyone. He, he's trying to say like, this is who Jesus is and, and was, and, and this is what this means for your life, and, and I'm telling you, turn towards Jesus. Like, it'll change everything. This is where freedom is found. This is where the purity of life, this is where you're supposed to see people and love the way that you could. Like, this is how you begin to engage it. Like, that's what Peter is proclaiming. He wasn't trying to scare people. And he wasn't trying to, like, live in fear in any kind of way. He wasn't saying to people who are kind of teetering on this religious thing, being like, man, the world's going to hell. Don't go along with it. Jump in now. That's not what it was about. He was like, let me show you something beautiful. And this is the message of Jesus. And what's interesting about this is we get away from this so quickly, don't we? We uh, get fearful. How many of you guys look at the world right now and it's just, you feel like it's just totally negative? It's easy to do. Like we, we see it and we feel, but we miss out on the beauty. We miss out on the way God's word. When we just sing miracle power, we, like we miss out on the, on, the, in, like on the miracles that God is doing. We actually even stop believing in them. It's interesting how many times I sit with people and we start talking about things that happen in life and, 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 and I'm, I'm struck by our lack of imagination that God could do something. I'm struck by our um, inability to believe in the miracle power of, of Jesus. Um, in the way we pray, isn't it fascinating how sometimes even when we pray, uh, we won't pray for miracles because it feels like, ah, oh, I don't want to get disappointed. And, and I wonder, like, maybe sometimes we don't experience certain things because we don't expect God to do them. And we take a step back from all of it and, and we try and be way too logical about things. Even in our prayers, we're like, God, would you do this? But, like, in case you don't. You know, and it's like, what if we just prayed with belief that God will do something and, 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 and expect God to come up big? And, and if he doesn't, maybe we pray in such a way that's like, but we still know God is God. He's going to come up big in some other kind of way. And it's like, that's what these guys were doing. It's like, um, if you ever prayed for someone for healing, for instance, and, and you believed that it was going to happen, and let's just say it didn't happen. But man, God's going to show up in some other powerful way. Right? But then sometimes he heals. And we, and we believe in those two, you've got to live in this tension that ends up happening with, with all this stuff. And we, and we see this as a part of the early church, this expectation, this belief in the miraculous power of what God can do. And, and it shaped them. It, it led them to a freedom. It led them to a fullness. It led them to see and love people uh, the way that they should. When Peter was, was preaching uh, in Acts chapter 2, he got to this point uh, where he, he has this line here in verse 40, and he says this. He says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. He said, save yourselves from this what? Corrupt generation. Now, he wasn't talking about, like, if you were saying that now, he'd be like, save yourselves from the Gen Z folks. Like, that's not what he was saying. Or save yourself from the boomers or, like, you know, whatever. He, he wasn't saying, like, a specific age grouping. What he was saying was like, take a look around you, look how this whole message has gotten corrupted, and save yourself from this. Well, well how do you save yourself? Well, his point was like, you save 
yourself from this corrupt generation by turning to Jesus. This is the way that you do it. So when you look at things falling apart and you look at maybe in your life, you know, even that one line in the song says like, like that it's hard being human sometimes. So much, you know, suffering, so much pain, right? And, and it's like, well, the way that you begin to engage is, is who, what do we turn to? We call on the name of Jesus. We're, we're turning to Jesus in the midst of this because where else are you going to look to? What other options do you have, right, that, that answer some of these questions? And so Peter's like, hey, I want you to save yourself from this corrupt generation. Now, there are ways, different ways to do this historically that we saw in great movements. Um, one of the movements was in the third century with all the desert father and mothers. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but people um, in an effort because things were getting so corrupt and in a way to kind of rid themselves of envy and lust and um, uh, coveting things and materialism and everything because Christianity was starting to have this odd relationship with, with the world around it and they just felt like things were getting so corrupt. These, these desert father and mothers uh, end up kind of leaving all of it and they go out. And they go out and they become people of prayer and of great discipline and establish kind of this different kind of community. And, and one of the ways that they did this was to, to kind of, they were living kind of counterintuitively to the world around them. And, and so they decided to kind of almost isolate themselves to some degree. That's what it seems like on the front end. But what they were really doing was establishing this beautiful community. Um, they were really trying to um, get ingrained into this movement uh, to experience God in this powerful way. And, and so now I'm not saying that we should all do this, okay? Uh, I'm not, like, they write documentaries about when people try to do this now um, and become cults. But, like, um, but it's not about like, about like isolating yourself or doing it. And, and even sometimes be like, oh, it's so easy if you just like run away from your problems. And like, that's what they were doing. It's like, no, that's not what they were doing. Like, what they were doing was trying to establish this new way of living. And even some of the things that they were establishing right now, uh, or establishing back then, are being reinfused to the Christian movement right now with like fasting and prayer and discipline and kind of communal mindset of how we go about things. It's this beautiful thing, right? And, uh, and a lot of people, are writings that are kind of like speaking into the life of like current culture right now in this beautiful way. And, and sometimes people are like, well, that would be so much easier to do this. And I'm like, hey, we had an opportunity to be isolated for a long time with COVID. And how many people have flourished? You see, what they were doing was something very different. They were trying to like, look at what was happening around them. And they're like, we're going to do something that's so counterintuitive to the world around us. And we're going to show what it actually looks like. And, and we're going to kind of get ingrained in, into this new culture, this new way of doing it. And they were basing so much of it about what they end up, what we'll end up reading about in Acts chapter 2 here today, about what community um, began to look like. But um, here's just one thought for you guys this morning, is that in order to be saved from a corrupt generation, we have to live counterintuitively to it. Um, we're all shaped by marketing. We realize that, Right? Like, in marketing's a powerful thing. I was in marketing for a long time. Like, marketing's a, a powerful thing. Uh, it can be a beautiful thing. Um, and, uh, but it can also be a bad thing, <laughs> right? It can shape the way we see things and, and understand the world around us. And, and, but what that does is it, it makes us think like we should go a certain way, contextually. But to be safe from a corrupt, the way things are, are corrupt, it's like, oh, uh, we have to live counterintuitively. So like right now, in the world around us, a lot of things are corrupt. Like, uh, you know, you think 
po politics. There's a corrupt element to like how that is. Um, you think about how people handle money, how people do, uh, how they see themselves with their bodies. Um, you think about sexuality. You think about uh, even within the church. There's so many elements of the church structure right now. What's happening in the church? There's this weeding out of the corrupt nature of things within the church, which is like a beautiful thing that we should celebrate, right? And uh, and and what God's doing, I believe, is like he's he's just kind of like weeding things. You know, like when you go in the garden, you're weeding out your mulch bed, right? Um, which you're a maniac if you enjoy that. Um, but, um, but like in the moment, like when you're, you're just, you're trying to like clean it all out, right? You're trying to clean it. And like, I think God's doing that right now. There's this weeding that's, that's happening in, in the midst of so many different things. And so, uh, to, to, but to move in this direction is requiring us to be like, we gotta live counterintuitively to what we see. This messaging that's happening, right? I mean, think about all the messaging, right? We're, we're, got to, we're about to be inundated with all the politics, the political stuff, right? It's like, how do I live counterintuitively to all that and think counterintuitively to all those things? It's, it's the same thing in every single thing. Name, name a cultural topic. It's like, what does it mean to be counterintuitive to all this? Like, and countercultural to um, all of it. So in Acts chapter uh, 2, they begin to describe what the community was like. And I'm going to read another passage in Acts chapter 4. And here's what I want to say in the front end. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. And here's what I mean by this. I'm not telling us all to go out and sell all of our homes today and give it away. I'm not saying to, um, but you might. You might. I'm not saying that like um, what we're about to read today is exactly what you have to do because I know things contextually are different and everything. There is a descriptive element of what this looked like, but there are some core elements to what the community of the church was that is prescriptive of how we're supposed to think about this. Um, but the way that they did it would probably look a little bit different than, than, than how we kind of go about things now, right? Because our lives are a little different than theirs, and so things are going to look different. Um, but we have to see, like, all right, contextually, what does this begin to look like? So watch this. Next chapter 2, this is this. They devoted, that's prescriptive. Devoted. To, to be a part of community of following, following Jesus, it's like we're devoted to it, okay? It says, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and the signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued uh, to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread uh, in their homes and ate together uh, with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord God added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now you look at a passage like this, and we should like pause for a second at passages like this, because who wouldn't want to experience this? This kind of community. I mean, my gosh. The spirit of the Lord is moving in such this like powerful way. And, and what does it start with? They're, they're devoted. Like they're, they're devoted to it. Like it's what consumes them. It's what drives their passion and what drives their desires. They're, they're devoted to this community to follow Jesus. They're, they're eating together. How many of you guys like to eat? Yeah. Yes, right. Let's get after it, right? Yeah. And... Um, Guaranteed, if I pass the mic around this room, um, 
many of your favorite memories are around a meal. Whether it's with friends or family, celebration, like it's, it's around a meal. We were, we were um, I officiated a wedding uh, this past week and, and there's just like just beautiful moment of just the celebration around the meal. There's something about eating together that's so um, powerful. And so we're doing this. Now in their context, they were able to, to gather every single day. All right, I get it. It's different than what we kind of live. But there was this desire to be together. Um, we have the opportunity to do this in, in different ways, but one of the ways is obviously gathering like this, right? This desire to be together, this desire to commune together. It's important. It's an important discipline that we set up in our lives. There's this, this beauty of it. And then it says that they, they saw these, they were in awe of the signs and wonders. You know what that is? That is them going to one another be like, can you believe what we saw yesterday? Can you believe what we experienced yesterday? I, I am in awe of what God is doing. When was the last time he did that? Now it's happening. It is. We're, we're very desensitized to it. But can you imagine a community of people coming together in such a way that we're in, we're in awe? Oh, my gosh. This morning when I was praying, I was just like, Man, like it, it's so cool to see what God has done in nine years in this place. And I was just thinking about an awe and wonder, right? And it's like, man, we got to learn how to not forget that. So how does that happen? You, you, you share stories. You eat together. You're devoted to one another. Like you appreciate the little moments. Like when you're close with people and you're in good community and you're developing, it's like you celebrate those little moments of like prayer, like you're praying about something and something happens. What is that? That's an awe and wonder moment that you celebrate. You can't do that in that way if, you're not, if you don't have community. And sharing together and eating together and being together in different ways. And so there's this idea that there's something incredible that's happening. And then they sold their possessions and to give to anyone who had need. That there was the, the bedrock of the church, the, the foundation was basically there was a consistent commitment eating together, confession and repentance, and they were filled with awe, sharing and generosity. And here's the beauty of it. And this part here, right here, the Lord added to their number. The Lord added to their number. Um, can you imagine how cool it would be every single Sunday that everyone would have to show up early to get a seat? Can you imagine uh, in this city if... Uh, Every church was just talking about, my gosh, God is adding to our numbers. Is that how we pray? Is that how we think? Is that what we talk about, right? But that, that, it should be. That's what we see in this early church model. And when the move of God, this awakening is happening, that becomes the desire of our heart. In Acts chapter 4, um, it talks about it this way. It says, all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that all, there were, um, all, of them, all that there were were no needy persons among them. What? That people were so gracious. People were so in awe of God. People were so responsive to the grace of Jesus and the death of resurrection in Jesus 
that they couldn't help being generous. They couldn't help, like, in their communities being, like, um, in such a way of being, like, oh, did you, did you hear Mark? Like, Mark has a need, right? In, like, in our community, maybe you do, I don't know. But we could talk about it later. But, like, Mark's like, Mark's like, Wags, I got a need. And, like, and, and we just go to the community and it's like, Mark's got a need. And the community responds, no one is, has needs in our community because we take care of them. Like, that's what it was like. It's crazy. It's like, and we hear it's like all these needs are happening. It's like, well, we take care of each other. Why? Because God took care of us. It, it's, it's this response, right? It's crazy. But that's what we begin to see. It says, from time to time, those who own lands or, or houses sold them, brought the money for, from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. There were these great acts of generosity. That's what they're describing. That there was this sacrificial element that happened. Why? Because the Spirit of God was moving. People wanted to be a community that represented Jesus well. And one of the things that came out in that community was this overwhelming um, desire to be generous. That people were like looking to be generous. Generous people look to be generous. You know who doesn't look to be generous? Greedy people. And, and so it, it changes everything. There's something like significant that shifts in the community. And so now, I, I want to say this about our community here. Uh, we, we have one of our core values is to be irrationally generous. And we wanted that embedded to, to who we are. And, and I just want to say this, like on the front end, like we've done a really good job. Really. Uh, I'll talk about this at the end, but like a really good job, you guys, of like being committed to, to wanting to be generous and, and having a great impact and giving away millions of dollars in our first nine years um, to, to the community and, and really investing in what it means to be that kind of community. And so it is something to be celebrated. It is something to be, um, uh, to build off of. And, um, but I also want you to hear a challenge too, that we have a long way to go. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay, there's something to be celebrated and something to be challenged by, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, but when the Spirit of God is moving, like we begin to see like an embrace and love the challenge of engaging uh, in this way. Uh, you know, even when you look at generosity kind of uh, worldwide, or I'll just go like throughout America, uh, Christians are overwhelmingly the most generous people, okay? I mean, it's not even like, it's not even like, close. It's not even close. Um, it's overwhelmingly. Um, the older folks, the boomers and Gen Xers, are the most generous people, okay? Some of that's because of resources, I get it. Um, but also some of it is really um, because of how they were raised. So, like, as an example, like, my parents did a wonderful job of continuing to show me, like, the importance of generosity and having that discipline, right? Um, as a little kid, I've told this story before. I remember getting a dollar and finding it in the church. And, and um, now, on the front end, this story sounds... It's just more funny. But like, uh, I found a dollar. I go to my mom. I show her I found a dollar in the church. And I'm not found it. Someone gave me a dollar for helping out. And, um, and, uh, and so she takes a dollar out of my hand and she gives me uh, uh, um, uh, change um, so that I could put a dime in the offering. And she was just like, um, this is what we do. And so it was established right now as a young kid. I was like six. And I was like, why would you take that from me? <laughs> You do this to your child. But like, but what was it doing early on? It was, it was establishing this level of this commitment to generosity. 
And, um, and I've seen, seen that in my family um, th- throughout my whole life. No matter what was happening financially, there was this undying like, element, a desire to be generous. And then when I got my own job, it was like, all right, you set it up in this way. And then when I became an adult, it's like, set it up in this way. This is what we do. Um, we're doing it when, when our kids start working at Chick-fil-A this summer. Guess what they're going to be doing? <laughs> Giving that sucker away, right? Like, so we're setting it up of what it means to be generous and, and why. And so it, it's important to do that, right? And you establish the, those things. And, and so um, as time has gone on to younger generations and, and the millennial generation and Gen Z, it's, um, it's kind of waned a little bit. And part of that is because of how they're raised, Parents didn't do a great job of raising kids to be generous. It, it was about checking boxes to get the next thing, to, to keep up with something, and, um, but instilling into our kids. I mean, how many parents in the room would like their kids to be generous? Well, you got to teach them. And guess who they're going to learn from? You. And so it's got to get set up. And so, um, to, but I also want to challenge like the younger folks in the room don't be a statistic. Be generous. Like, carve it out. Be disciplined about it. I get it. Like, you feel like you're not making as much money as you'd like, but orient your life around generosity. You will never regret being generous. Guaranteed you will regret being greedy. Guaranteed. You're like, yeah, but I have a lot of fun stuff. You might. But at some point, like when the day comes, can you imagine at your funeral, be like, oh, she was so greedy. I'm so happy she was my mom. It doesn't even sound right, does it? Like it feels dumb that I would say something like that, right? Like, no, I would never say something. But is that the lived experience? It's like, ah, well, see, when the Spirit of God's moving in communion, it's like, man, this... This whole thing begins to shift and change of how we begin to see uh, what's around us. I wrote this down this week, that authentic movements that reveal who Jesus is always have generosity as a core value to it. Always has generosity core value to it. Um, The abolitionist movement, when that big movement happened, um, part of what that movement was was the unending generosity of people of means stepping in to do something others couldn't. It was part of the movement. Um, in, uh, in the 1857, there's this huge prayer movement with businessmen in, in New York City. It started off really small, just a few guys that got together. Um, within about a year, it was 10,000 businessmen gathering weekly together for prayer. These guys, uh, they were like big titans in the business industry, um, started leveraging their money um, for the good of the kingdom of God. And they estimate um, within a year, uh, over a million people came to know Jesus. And there's something about the generosity that was counterintuitive to the world around it. That it just, it's a natural overflow of when this happens. This has been part of, um, part of how God has put things from the beginning, right? In Leviticus 19, which is one of the early books in our Bibles, it says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. This is a command. It's like, you've got all this stuff. He's like, you've got to leave stuff for people in need. Like, the heart of generosity is always going to be there. 
In Deuteronomy, he says it in another way. He says, if anyone is poor among you, among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. But they're not working hard enough. They're being lazy. They got to get a job. And listen, I get those conversations about people, but, but we always approach this like, tight-fisted. It's mine. God's like, don't do that. Rather be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Hmm. I get it. There's wisdom at times with stuff like this. I get it. God has just given a command to his people. And he's like talking about generosity. And, and he goes, this is the result. Then your light will break forth. But if you're not generous, your light will never break forth. Wait, wait. Give me that back. Um, that's almost a good catch. Um, your light will never break forth. And your healing will quickly appear. Hmm. If we're greedy, things stay bad. Then your righteousness, I mean your holiness, will go before you. If you're greedy, people will never think you're holy. If you're greedy, people will never think you're righteous. And the glory of the Lord will be um, be your rear guard, then you will call and the Lord will answer. Hmm. That's interesting. That there's something about our prayers are different when our hearts are actually in a generous mindset. You will cry out for help and he will say, here I am. Our prayers are affected by our, the level of our generosity. Have you ever thought about that? Like how many times have you sat in your prayers um, and prayed for your generosity? God, will you convict my heart of where I'm greedy? Now, there's an easy, practical way to go about this, right? You can just make your budget. But, but what about the heart issue? To like, God, I want you to convict me like crazy about my greed, wherever it is. Open my eyes to it. I'm not even going to ask how many people in the room have ever done that. But I bet you you've prayed about a job or a promotion, I bet you prayed about that house you wanted or that car you wanted or something you wanted, right? But how often have we prayed? And it's like God's kind of mapping this stuff out. He's like, man, when our hearts are generous and like that's our, that's our orientation, our posture, it's like our prayers change. And, and all of a sudden, our, our connection to God is different. Why? Because our prayers are different. Our, our vision is different. And when we start praying, it's like God's like, here I am. I've been here. But when you're greedy, it's like you don't see it. In Proverbs 28, it talks about how greed stirs up conflict. Proverbs 29 talks about the greedy people love bribes and favoritism. Jeremiah 8 says that greedy people will actually sacrifice wives to other men, meaning you'll, you'll give up your family. You give up what's been good and given to you by God. It's like you'll give up things because you want personal or selfish gain. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about not to hang out with the sexually immoral. And everyone's like, yeah. Or the idolaters. They're like, yeah. Or the drunks. Everyone's like, yeah. Right? And it's like the swindlers. Like, we would never hang out with the swindlers. But it also says, don't hang out with greedy people. <laughs> You're like, no, hold on a second. 1 Corinthians 6 says, greedy people don't get the kingdom of God. So he's pretty serious about it. So why don't we, and I just want to quickly highlight two things that I think are important. 
why don't we, uh, there's a spiritual side to this being like, uh, I should say there's a practical side. We haven't lined our lives up to be generous. Um, There's a a teaching side that maybe you just haven't been taught. Um, There is a spiritual side that I believe that we got to open our hearts and minds open to. But I think we push these, the spiritual side off, and I think it's two main reasons. The first reason is this, we don't like how generous God is. You're like, hold on, no, 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 I do. I, I really love when God is generous to me. When I'm like, let's talk about God's forgiveness. Everyone's like, yeah, let's talk about his grace. Yeah, let's talk about like he saved you. Yeah, everyone's like, love that generosity. But then when God is generous to someone else who you kind of don't like, you're like, mm, I don't like that. He's a jerk or he's evil. Why does he get this? I deserve that. Let's be honest for a moment. How many of you in your life have had someone you've really disliked but has gotten good things and you were mad at that? Yeah. You might go to work tomorrow and be like, I can't stand that person. Why are they promoted over me? God, why would you do this to me, right? See, sometimes we don't like how generous God is, but they already helped us out with this story. This is nothing new. The story of Cain and Abel. So in the beginning, uh, Adam and Eve are the beginning, and Cain, and they have two sons, Cain and Abel, and they both give these offerings to, to God, and um, Abel gives, like, the best. He gives his first fruits, like, this open-handed, uh, um, generous heart. Cain kind of pulls back a little bit. He still gives an offering, but his, just wasn't, his heart wasn't in the right place. And God, and God responds to him, says, Cain, why are you so angry? Why are your face so downcast? If you just do what is right, you will, will you not be accepted? He's like, it's not hard. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but it, you must rule over it. He's like, listen, this, this, your greed and everything is like, it's like sin's just crouching, waiting to pounce on you. If you just do what's right, like you're good. And you can, you can overcome that. Does Cain do that? No, he decides to murder. And he murders Abel. Here's what's crazy about it. And this is like what we do. Like you read the story and it's like, oh my gosh. But then God protects Cain. Unbelievable generosity. He like sends him out and there's some punishment, some consequence for this, but God still in his unbelievable generosity protects Cain. And it's like this tension-filled element to the generosity of God. So we don't like that part of the story, but this happens to us more than we care to admit. When we see bad people who we think are bad people getting good things, it's like, why, God, would you ever be so generous to them? It's the same story of Cain and Abel. Another reason that we don't, oop, is we convince ourselves our way is better. We convince ourselves our way is better. Um, Abraham, this guy named Abraham, did the same thing. Um, Abraham, uh, uh, the story goes that he, he and his wife Sarah couldn't have a kid. Uh, he, and God gives him this incredible promise and this blessing. And he even says that you're going to have, man, so many, like your generations are going to span the, the stars of the sky and you're going you're, you're gonna to have children. But he, he doesn't believe him. Well, he says he believes him, but then he kind of goes out and does his own thing. And he impregnates one of his slave wives, and, uh, and they have a son named Ishmael, all right? Here's what's crazy. 
um, Sarah, his wife, then later on gets pregnant, right, in this miraculous pregnancy. In this story, here's what we begin to see that's incredible. Ishmael was evidence of what Abraham could do. Isaac, the other son, was evidence of what God could do. When Abraham went and did his own thing, because he given that his, his own way was better, he still had a kid. But here's what his greediness did, and going his own way did. It actually caused a social injustice over a woman, and Hagar caused her great pain. Now God comes back around in his generosity and says to Hagar, I see you. Or she says, God sees me. But man, his, his greed and his possessiveness of his own way caused injustice around him. But yet this incredible story of Isaac then is like, oh, this is what God could do. And so it changes everything. And so um, let me ask you this. Is generosity compelling? That's an easy one. You, like, that's an easy yes, right? Is gener- yes. How many of you guys want to be known as generous? Wow. How about that? And it's like, well, are you willing to open yourself up to it, to its reality? Let me just highlight a couple of things, and Ben, you can get ready to come back. When I talk about, you know, here at Hill City, you know, so often we, uh, if this is your home church and everything, like, I just want you guys to be generous. I do. I, I want you guys to be committed to it. Um, if this is your home church, you're committed to this community, this is part of your community, you should, you sh- you should give here. Th- these are your people. We help one another out. Like, this is the way you should. And I don't apologize for saying that. <laughs> And you, there should be like a consistent element to it. Um, I'm not going to tell you a percentage or anything like that. That's, that's between you and God. But this should be one of the places that you give. And, um, and so this is not like a begging for money or anything. This is about like us like being able to do this together. So I want you to be aware of where your giving goes. And listen, we're wide open with the money. If you have any questions ever, we'll tell you. You just, you can email Joe, um, which is joe at hillcityrva.com. He loves these conversations. And, um, and he's like, if you, if you want to talk to him about where our money goes, he will take out all of our spreadsheets and sit down with you and we'll go through, we'll go line by line, okay? Because we want you to trust where it's going. Um, how does your generosity make a difference here at Hill City? Uh, it creates a space, right? Um, the staff that you see um, is from your generosity. Uh, leadership development, not only here, um, but within uh, all the places that people serve. And um, we also are part of helping other pastors and stuff in other areas. Um, counseling services, discipleship of all ages. On this morning during practice, um, I was watching Marianne play and her daughter Ava was just sitting down uh, like, uh, like at her feet, basically. I don't, yeah, that's what was happening. But she's there and she's singing the songs as Marianne's praying and, and Ava's in, in middle school. And I was sitting there thinking about myself, man, this is such a beautiful picture. Like our generosity is like, oh, this is a discipleship of all ages, right? To, to look at Ava or any kid that you see today or any student that you see today. Your generosity is saying to them, I deeply care how you see your church experience. Your generosity is saying to them, um, here's what I want you to be able to know and believe that we deeply care about you. It changes things for our kids. Um, all of our community events that, that go on, the serving of one another, taking care of one another, that's where your generosity happens. So the internal work created, um, it creates mature and resilient disciples to do the external work, right? Like, so, 
So there is an element where giving makes this community go. It's just the way it is, right? How does your generosity impact Richmond and beyond? Look at this list, y'all. This is no joke. The impact generosity has. And we're trying to do here and to expand on all of this. I mean, foster care, adoption, fighting human trafficking, refugee settlement, fatherhood initiatives, counseling, addiction recovery, college ministries, pediatric missions, disability ministry, transportation assistance, church planning, fighting racial injustice, housing assistance, single moms, supporting mission, uh, missionaries, incarceration recovery, partnerships and justice issues all throughout the, the region. That's no joke. But what I want us to, to know and be challenged by the heart of every great movement and every great community boldly proclaiming the reality of Jesus is like this deep desire and, and to just be generous. Like, I don't want to be known as the most generous church publicly, but I would love for us to be privately. Like, I want to, like, I've always wanted our church, this is already happening, and I think we have so far to go, and like, I always want to be like, whoa, Hill City was involved in that. Like, I don't want our name on it or anything, but I just always want us connected to all these different things because of our incredible generosity and to make a difference in this city. Like, if we didn't exist, like, Richmond would, like, feel it, feel it. But God's like, who's going to respond? So I want you guys to bow your heads. We're going to sing a song aptly called Shall Not Want because it's a proclamation that God provides. But I want you to pause here for a second. And I want it to be um, centered around... um, I just want you to have a moment with God about your own generosity. We all have room to grow. We all have room to grow. But I just want you to spend a moment and see what God might be speaking to your heart before we sing this last song.